Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Originally from Detroit, Marlon Brown heard the call to go west, young man, and that's exactly what he did. Brown and his husband, Danny Terrell, left Detroit and settled in Seattle. While still working in the IT industry, Marlon began Bessie's Cakes, named in tribute to his grandmother, who was known in her family for making delicious signature cakes, pies, and cobblers. After years of continuing to bake cakes and cobblers for family and friends, Marlon established Bessie's Cakes to continue the legacy of his grandma, Bessie May Ingram. His passion, however, was in social justice, specifically in building racial equity. As a certified equity and social justice practitioner, Marlon specializes in leadership coaching, facilitation, training, and organizational development with an emphasis on equity and customer service. Marlon is also very skilled and experienced in change agent mentoring, racial caucusing, and policy development and implementation. As a partner at Racial Equity Consultants, LLC, he creates and advises equity committees and teams and anti-racist curriculum development. Marlon, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? How are you doing today? How's life out there in Seattle? <laughs> um, I, I am doing good today. Um, this is one of the uh, rare days that I actually have off from work. Wow. So, uh-huh. um, but that doesn't mean I ain't working. I'm actually working, uh-huh. but I'm just not. With, I'm just not with clients. <laughs> so, uh huh. Uh huh. So yeah. uh-huh. you know, yeah. you'll forever be a Detroit guy. I mean, you're always a Detroiter. <laughs> you know. And... I do, I say that all the time. So, <laughs> uh-huh. what what do you miss most? You know uh, about being I... here with us. <laughs> Yeah, I, I miss – right, exactly, besides you. <laughs> yes, because I do miss you. Um, I, miss, I miss the culture of Detroit, you know, coming from a city that's predominantly black um, and steeped in a very rich black culture, um, and, and that, you know, is mixed, good, bad, and indifferent. 
Um, but coming from a, a, a city that um, has uh, shown me the beauty and the brilliance of black people uh, and the overwhelming possibilities that we have as black people, um, I miss that daily reminder. Because living here in Seattle, Seattle is uh, very white, um, and uh-huh. black people make up 6%, 6% of the population in the city, yeah. um, which is drastically different from Detroit. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, and yeah. it's dwindling, so it's, it's actually wow. shrinking. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, you know, and even in the state, um, the state only has 3% black, three, just a little over 3% black people in the state. Um, so it's different. I miss the culture. I miss seeing um, black people who uh, like other black people, who want to be in community with black people, who, um, you know, who, who, who really understands uh, black people beyond the context of white supremacy, mm. uh, which is very, very evident here. And, you know, people who have migrated, black people who have migrated here um, uh, some time ago, their, their children have uh, assimilated to these ideals of um, blackness as being scary, fearful, to be feared, uh, and to do anything you're possible, anything possible to assimilate to white culture. And um, that, that's something, you know, being here over 13 years now, you know, no, wow. I, I've not a- adopted, I have not uh-huh. adapted, <laughs> you uh-huh. know, and so, uh, which forces me and Danny to stand out. We are, you know, a, a, among the few black um, same gender presenting couples in the state. You know, there it's a it's a rarity to find two black um, male presenting uh, people in a relationship and to be married uh, mm-hmm. in this state. That's, that's, that's rare, <laughs> wow. which is very different, very different for us. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, about uh, – now I'm thinking it might have been over a year ago. I talked with Danny, and he – and, you know, when you talk about the beauty and the brilliance of Detroit, okay, you took it with you. <laughs> okay, you have it mm-hmm. in your partner. He's just, you know – Brilliant. He's a, an amazing choreographer, dancer, you know, artist. And he said pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. How has it helped the two of you been there? I mean, you know, I know that you can lean on each other, but does it also sometimes make it feel like the two of you against the world, the Seattle world? It- it is interesting. Um, th- there is a bit of isolation um, because we are such an anomaly. And, you know, people call us a power couple because of 
our stance, our, our stature, our leadership and community, both of us individually, um, me being more in the uh, activist realm and, uh, you know, people just seeing me as a leader in, in some form of leadership in a variety of ways, and the same for Danny. And when it comes to the arts world, arts community here, Danny is in leadership and uh, in a lot of regards. Uh, so us together, <laughs> we have developed okay. what you know people view us as a power couple. And so, um, and I think we we ha- we I, I guess we kind of had some of that even in Detroit. Um, where people knew us, we were in relationships with, with a lot of people. Um, we could bring people together, um, and doing that, manifesting that here, definitely has happened. Uh, we are, we find ourselves in very powerful conversations uh, with people, um, and have access to people that most folks don't have access to. Um, so, I think what has happened differently is just our ability to be far more successful than we probably could have been in, in Michigan. Mm. Just in us being able to, 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 to develop our businesses, our, you know, our work experiences, and, and, and be uh, who we are today. Um, you know, resting on the foundation that we uh, have from Detroit, um, then here being you know, we're hustlers. You know, Detroit, uh-huh. living and surviving uh-huh. in Detroit, you got to hustle. You got to hustle. You, know, you got to hustle. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, they don't have a state hustle mentality out here. So, you know, we we stand out just on our, our hustle. You know, we get in, we're doing work, we're doing things in excellence because that's, you know, another part of our culture, you know, especially coming out of you know, Christian households and, and that, you know, if you're going to do it, you know, do it in excellence. And, we're, we're, you know, we do the things that we do really well, um, which also adds to us standing out, <laughs> you know. Um, but we, we have experienced a level of success that I don't think we could have achieved um, in Detroit, you know, in the way in which we have, um, which – you know, sometimes it makes me sad, but it is uh, something we think about a lot is, you know, we're, we, we live a different life. We, the, the types of um, pressure and stress and drama that we experience in um, Michigan, just by Michigan being Michigan, um, uh-huh. are some of the things that we don't, we don't necessarily uh, experience here. Uh, we don't experience the amount of uh, racial profiling by law enforcement as we did in Michigan, uh, especially being in the suburbs versus being in the city. <laughs> you know, there's a dynamic. There's uh-huh. a different dynamic. Um, you know, and the quality of life is different. You know, which is really interesting uh, that I I wish we could have experienced in Michigan, um, but. You know, like you said, we're still Detroiters. We're, we're you know, we're, we're we're Detroiters living in Seattle. We're not Seattleites. We have never adopted. Uh-huh, that. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. But it, it is definitely a different way of life here. You know, people. I mean, 
the image that, you know, the people think about Seattle. You know, it's like a, a bunch of grunge hippies drinking coffee, sitting in the rain, being chill. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, I mean, every show that I have seen that shows Seattle hasn't shown many black people, first of all. Right. But right. coming from Detroit, and like you said, you, you hustle. We hustle hard here. And mm-hmm. knowing what can happen as a black man, when you get out here and, and you're amongst, you know, grungy, hippie-drinking coffee in there, and you want to talk about things that here in Detroit would take a totally different tone about that mm. driving while black that you don't have to mm. experience. And, you know, we've seen all this stuff in the news. Do you find mm. that they call upon you to try to explain it, or do you feel the need to sort of like, you know, give them a pinch and say, mm-hmm. no, you know, you might think you're not racist, you might think that you're really cool, but this is what's going on in the rest of the world, and you've experienced it? Yeah, I mean, I, it is part of the reason why I do racial equity consulting full-time now um, yeah. is because people wanted to tap into us uh, tap into to me, you know, bend my ear to ask mm-hmm. those questions. And um, I recognize very quickly that people want to want to have those conversations for free. And I was mm-hmm. like, um, <laughs> no. we're not, not going to do that. I'm not going to solve all your racial problems for free. Uh-huh. This country has a history of trying to pimp us for our skills and our experiences and, and and then you turn around and capitalize on them. And so we're not going to do that today. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and it is part of why I went into this business, leaving corporate America, where I was having these conversations. I'm, you know, having to be in, you know, you know because I was in IT. You know, I was mm-hmm. in IT project management years for 20 years, actually, um, and part of that work, um, which none of my coworkers had to do, I often always had to train my managers and leadership how to manage um, for a black person mm-hmm. because what they experience leading and managing white people is very different from when we're, um, when we're on the team and what, our, what we experience and what they will experience because we're on their team is not what they're prepared for, you know, as white folks, managing white folks. Managing uh-huh. black folks is, comes with a whole other set of foolishness that um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not taught. And so I'm having to teach them. You know, when I, as a, you know, a person in leadership, having to tell a white person, no, they can't have a thing, they're going to do what they always do. They're going to go to their white whoever person, my manager or whatever, and get you to make me do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my no, you know, my no comes with, you know, all this baggage. My counterpart's no would not be questioned, but they're going to question my no. And you, mm-hmm. as my manager, need to know that that's going to happen, and you need to take my leadership in this. And I'm going to walk you through what this scenario is going to look like because I mm-hmm. know what, how it goes. And so 
you know, if I, I found myself having to teach my managers, you know, how to prepare for the foolishness that we were going to experience. Uh-huh. And that was taxing. It was taxing. I wasn't getting paid for it. And, and ultimately, they reaped the benefits when they were able to move into higher positions. They had that skill set that I gave them for free. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, no, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Marlon, yeah. when, when you walked in the room and, you know, on that they meet you and they say, oh, he's from Detroit, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you did you find that you had to peel back certain stereotypes? I know, like, I have been, like, to other cities and, and mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, I'm from Detroit and there's, you know, like, I don't know, I'm supposed to be packing a gun or something. I don't know. Or they, you know, mm-hmm. think I'm going to jump off a certain way. And if I tell them that I went to chaos, it was like, oh, you know, did you know Diana Ross? That you know, it's a big school, and she was there before me. Right. I mean, so do you find yeah. things like that that when you say you're from Detroit, that you have to like sort of say peel it back a little? No, I am not <laughs> everything that you you think of from Detroit. Mm-hmm. And what are the things? Like, you know, I know what they're going to talk about, you know, at one time we were murder city. But what do you try to flip on them to say what, what are the plus things about Detroit that they need to know about you as a Detroiter? Yeah, um, I, I do. That does come up uh, from time to time. And what I uh, say when they make those, oh, my God, you're from Detroit. Well, what, you know, they ask their questions. I say, well, you know, I, I am only one uh, person, you know, who had had my own experience. I don't speak for all Detroiters. I have not lived the same experience as all Detroiters. So I can really only tell you about my experience. But what I encourage you to do is to go and visit Detroit for yourself and build your own understanding and experience of the city and not rest on you know, the easy way, which is listening to other people's stories about a place you've never been or lived. And so, you know, I was like, well, I can only tell you that my experience is, is this. You know, I, I have never, you know, smoked marijuana, for instance, because one, one lady thought, you know, all black people smoke marijuana. And I was like, <laughs> um, who told you that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, you know, that's all, you know, what's, what happens on TV and on, you know, whatever. I was like, well, you can't believe everything on TV, you know. I mean, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and, and I let me be one to tell you that I've never smoked a drug in my life, and neither has my spouse, who we, and we're both black. And so, you know, it blew her mind. She was like, oh, I just assume that all black people did. I was like, nope, I don't know yeah. where you got that from, but. You know, it's it's a it's false, and you can't broad brush broad stroke. You know, the black experience to be these stereotypes that you've been socialized. You have to, yeah. you know, work to really divorce those and really build relationship with folks, and let them tell you their narrative, not use these shortcuts. When was the last time you were back in Detroit? I was just there in April. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, did you go downtown? <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm getting. Hey, did you did did you wander around? And what did you think of the change, the gentrification that's happening in Detroit? 
<laughs> so in April we didn't we didn't go downtown. We were we were there because um, Danny's dad wasn't wasn't doing well, so we spent a lot of uh-huh. time more with, with um, in Inkster in um, Inkster and Taylor. Uh-huh. Um, but previous trips we have definitely seen the gentrific- gentrification. You know, we I haven't even been into the Whole Foods off Hong Kong. <laughs> I've, uh-huh. I've been by it, you know, because the Starbucks is there, and so I've been to the Starbucks. But, you know, I can't even bring myself to go into a Whole Foods because I know that that Whole Foods um, signifies that white people live in this area. And just, you know, we have driven down Woodward through, you know, down John R., down Cass, um, and seen the, the, the tremendous change. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, wow, you know, this is outrageous that they're charging what they're charging for folks to live on Cass Corridor, which people uh-huh. were like running to Cass Corridor, and now people are running to Cass Corridor, and you've got to uh-huh. bring your, your, your good credit card. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it is very it's very different. It's it's um unfortunately not surprising. Uh it actually makes me sad because um these investments are were what we were asking for when we lived there. You know, the potential, you know, for many of us to um you know, turn things around in our city and and have the investments, you know, and for folks to really, you know, um, cherish the beauty that is in our city, um, you know, we uh, we've always known that, um, but we weren't in positions of power and authority to to actually make change, um, and I, I think that that is something that I have grown in as well. I wasn't very engaged in the politics of Detroit. Um, because I was exposed to so much corruption that was happening, mm-hmm. um, you know, working for the government for a short time, and was like, oh, Lord, this is outrageous. <laughs> 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 oh, the stories are, are not even, you know, the tip of the iceberg, but, um, you know, seeing that gentrification and really seeing how black folks are not um, – you know, are being forced out, you know, especially with when the recession happened, all of our uh, house values plummeted, uh, and, um, you know, and, and the just a tremendous loss, knowing that most of the people that I went to school with who own homes um, either walked away from their homes or was forced out of their homes and, you know, this whole uh, exodus to the suburbs and things like that. And then, you know, um, and just a tremendous amount of wealth loss that happened. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that was really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Still heartbreaking, um, you know, uh-huh. talking about. Um, but that, you know, this new generation of wealth that is happening, especially for folks who have never lived in Detroit, you know, and this, you know, influx of white folks moving into Detroit, buying property, um, you know, whether they live there or not. I know quite a few folks here in the Seattle area who actually own property in Michigan, in Detroit, and have never Uh. even been there, but they 
saw, uh-huh. you know, oh, get a whole block for $10,000? Yeah, okay. Well, yeah. You know. um, so, you know, that part is sad, you know, and Danny and I really thought about, you know, how can we um, help, you know, as far as, you know, keeping property in black families um, and getting in on that and, you know, it's been a lot of conversations. We haven't pulled the trigger on it yet, but we're definitely uh-huh. interested in that. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, as we have been really helping our family really think about, you know, Detroit, you know, whatever you think about Detroit, the the, the values of the homes are going to come back. And so while they're in this state, you need to be investing <laughs> and figuring out how uh-huh. to buy uh-huh you know, and keep that property in black families because uh, otherwise, you know, folks are going to definitely continue to capitalize off of um, the devastation that's happened in the city. Wow. Well, that's a perfect segue uh, for our next segment. We're going to take a short break, and I want to talk about family wealth and family legacy. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. We're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I am talking to a Detroiter, Marlon Brown, who resides in Seattle. How's that? (laughs) That's right. You know, and and, you know, and you were talking about, you know, recently I had some friends who who used to live here and had moved away, and they came to visit, and we were driving around, and they were looking like at. Okay, first of all, they were amazed at the downtown area, and they said, you know, they remembered when, you know, half of downtown was boarded up, and, you mm-hmm. know, and now it's all these shishi little shops. And then we started to, we went out in the neighborhood, and it was like, you know, there are like food deserts, so, you know, there's not a store mm-hmm. anywhere, and so the neighborhoods are going, and they went to their neighborhood where they had grown up and, you know, where at one point had been, you know, semi-middle class, but now, I mean, it was just like a war zone. And they said the same thing. And they, and they had mm-hmm. talked to, they, I guess they had met one of their old neighbors who had said that basically somebody had come in and bought up these houses and were written them out. They didn't even live here. Nobody knew. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you know, that they hadn't thought about that, about the wealth, our, our family wealth of owning property, of holding on to their houses. They said they knew that one of their cousins had let the house go just because of taxes. And had they known it, they would have stepped up because, you know, now they looked at me, you know, it's like 
This is going to come back, and we have nothing. Yep, that's right. <clears throat> that's right. I know, you know, one of the things that I know, you know, and I, I love that you, you think that way, and when you left, was it ever in your mind that you might come back? Um, I think in, in the early years, there was a possibility of coming back. But I think the more uh-huh. that we stayed out here, we lived out here, um, and we just was able to breathe. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting sense of comfort being here where you're not, when you're not hunted. Uh-huh. Um, and racism is is also different here. Michigan, of course, is very overt. You know, people don't have a problem telling you uh, where they stand with you, with, you know, based on your skin color. Um, here it is, it's not overt racism. We have what we call covert racism where they <laughs> smile on your uh-huh. face and, you know, uh-huh. do these really nice things, but behind your back, you know, it's, a whole another situation, but it's not, and it's not, it's not um, less impactful. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the overt parts, uh, you know, adds some some comfort. I think we we're we're because we're so used to overt racism as well as being you know. Um, queer, same-gender loving, that kind of thing, being gay, um, and having to be very protective with our spaces, um, being here where being queer is widely, openly celebrated. That's um, an interesting shift in culture, um, Mm -hmm. as well as um, just not having the, the stresses uh, that we had, you know, for safety. You know, there's some, there's still some safety concerns, but not as much as we had when living in Michigan. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, difference. You know, but coming you, back home. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. No, I mean, you know, I I can imagine. You're know, like, do you have to do like a a, a shift? Like, okay, I'm back in Detroit. Okay, okay, I'm back there. You know, do you find yourself doing a little shift each time? Get your, um, your Detroit no, swag on when you get back here. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I don't feel like I have to code switch in in that regard. Uh-huh. I do, uh-huh. I'm. I I do feel like. Um, Detroit is still home, um, and I kind of feel like a visitor because. Things have changed. My my mentality has changed. You know, my hustle is is different, mm-hmm. and um, but my my thought my thoughts about life are bigger mm-hmm. um, because I can I can see beyond the next day. The type of survival that we were in um, was literally living paycheck to paycheck, and literally day to day. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming back, I still see so many folks in, in, that, um, in that 
in that mindset. You know, it's I'm just working to pay the bills, to get to the next day, you know, um, that type of hustle, uh, and not a lot of conversations about what the future holds, what, you know, what I want to be doing in five years, um, which I thought was very interesting um, because, you know, here we, we can, we have enough leeway where we can actually future plan and think about, okay, well, in five years, I'm going to make this move, and this is how we're going to get there, what that plan is going to look like. Um, we're, you know, um, it is definitely different than, you know, being in space where everyone is just trying to survive the day to get to the next day. And um, I think that's really different. When I come back, I don't, I don't, I don't, usually interact with a whole lot of people anyway, um, but, you know, because I'm usually there to see family and, and whatnot. But, you know, mm-hmm. when I'm at the store and having conversations because it's so easy to be in conversations with folks in Detroit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's the culture, you know, you're at the grocery store, you're doing an exchange, and people are asking, genuinely asking, how are you doing, you know, and, and you're having conversations which is not the norm here. People don't have those types of conversations here. You know, that's just not – they're very transactional. You know, they come, do their thing, move on. They're not trying to, you know, actually hear how you're doing, how you feel. (laughs) So, um, you know, those are the parts that I really like. But I think that, you know, there's – I I can see the bigger system that's in play in Michigan. Uh-huh. Um, I have a lot more language to really talk about what's happening and uh-huh. uh, the system that keeps many of us as black folks in this grind mentality because of the laws and the practices that's just in place, you know, the the constant you know, hunting of, of black folks in the suburbs, you know, with the profile and the tickets and, you know, that cycle and high utility rates and high insurance, uh-huh. car insurance and, you know, lack of, you know, quality health care. You know, I can see that now uh, as, you know, this system really, you know, intentionally designed to keep poor people poor. You know, and uh-huh. if you make it up, you know, if you make it out and you are able to get back into middle class, because we, we were once in middle class when we were in Michigan, and then when the bottom fell out, we all, you know, struggled and suffered, which is how I ended uh-huh. up out here. With that, with uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, trying to get back and shifting shifting that 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 thought of, you know, I'm trying to get out of the hood because, you know, being in suburbs is, you know, better, better status, and I ain't with, you know, those black folks. And I'm like, nope, you know, that that actually isn't true. We're still black no matter where we live. And uh-huh. if, we, if we ascribe to and assimilate to the foolishness that we've been taught from white folks about separating from our people, we are destined to fail. And so – you know, and being here made, made that very much more evident with very little black people around and mm-hmm. and seeing that mentality on a broad scale. Black folks, most black folks here did interact with many black folks. And in fact, dating 
here, um, most black folks prefer to date people outside of black community. Hmm. Which wow. is the oddest thing. Uh, it's the oddest thing. Uh-huh. 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 I've, never, I've, never, I've never lived in a place where I, this is the only other place I've lived other than Michigan. Um, but here, I've never met so many um, multiracial, biracial people in my life. There are more uh-huh. biracial people here than there are black people here. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you know, but the thing that's so funny is they're biracial, but if they were here in the South, another place, you know, they still got that one drop. You brown, you know, if you, if you got a little <laughs> one there, you're still black, you know, you know. Yeah, right? and we accept them, and we accept them into our family mm-hmm. uh, as, you know, I mean, yes, the, the one drop rule doesn't really, you know, isn't mm-hmm. enforced. It's still on laws in a lot of places, but it's not enforced. Mm-hmm. But that is a, a very interesting difference here, too, versus at home. People who were mixed, you know, or multiracial or biracial, you know, was more often accepted into their black families and then mm-hmm. in their white families. Whereas mm-hmm. here, um, they're often not accepted in either family. Mm. Wow. And so they're found to be you know, islands unto themselves, and then they're trying to, you know, connect with other, you know, biracial, multiracial folks and create a community for themselves because they are often ostracized from their um, mm-hmm. families, which is, you know, a very interesting dynamic to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and now as a, as a social scientist, you know, seeing the, that behavior and the, you know, uh, happen and manifest and people trying to heal uh, and create community um, is kind of, you know, interesting to to watch and support where I can, you know. I'm mm-hmm. not, I've never lived a biracial experience, and so I, I the, the most I can do is offer support and an ear and, uh, you know, and that uh, as mm-hmm. what's something that I can do. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I have noticed, okay, that after you got there, you did. You really started to flourish and do that. But I, I, I often noticed that, you know, on your Facebook page, you would have these lovely desserts, and I kept waiting for you to come back and bring me some <laughs> cupcakes or a cake or something. I didn't even know you baked. But, you know, you not only did you do that and then put these pictures up after you're gone and I can't get any, but you started a business that sees yeah. fakes. I mean, yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know you had it in you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the, the, the truth be told, Bessie's Cakes started in Detroit, and I did have the business in Detroit, and I was baking much smaller scale, much, much, much. You know, it was more word of mouth, family stuff, you know, church stuff. So, like, if I, you know, whatever church I was a part of, uh-huh. I would do, you know, stuff for, you know, that way, way, way smaller. Um, uh-huh. But then when we, when we moved here, um, there aren't, you know, you can find, you know, black folks bake. You know, we, you know, we, every grandmama, 
you know, around, know how to bake a cake and, and, and that. And so it wasn't like a big need uh, in okay. Detroit. You know, you can go somewhere and get a good cake. You can go to a restaurant and get oh, a good yeah. cake. Mm-hmm. Um, but here in Seattle, that's not the case. You know, folks out here um, oftentimes didn't have their grandmothers, uh, you know, to to bake for them. A lot of folks here don't cook or bake. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, when when I started, I was like, you know, which I did the same exact thing. Once I got with the church community, I was like, hey, you know, I can bake a cupcake or two, whatever, you know. I know how to do that thing. And then it just kind of blew up. It blew up from there, and then other churches were like, hey, we had, we were over at your <laughs> fellowship, and we had the cupcakes, and can you make cupcakes for us? And then it went from a dozen cupcakes to two dozen cupcakes to four dozen cupcakes to eight dozen cupcakes. It was like blowing up. And then, for whatever reason, I got uh, coerced to wedding cakes and weddings. <laughs> <laughs> And so it just kind of blossomed, you know. I mean, I had been cooking and baking all my life, um, but when, you know, you know, as that really kind of blossomed and the possibility of a real business um, emerged, you know, it really kind of took off. And so I had started to shift, you know, working at King County. So I worked at the only Martin Luther King Jr. County in the country, <laughs> which is here, Um, and, you know, working there as an IT professional, I was also becoming um, uh, equity and social justice practitioner within the county, uh, within a government entity, and I was also in a union. So I was a union shop steward, Um, so I'm managing all of this work and all of this growth you know, really having conversations about race and racism on the job and really working to build that infrastructure within an organization. And I even ventured to uh, bring anti-racism into union contract language, which was, like, groundbreaking. Uh, Uh It still is groundbreaking. (laughs) You know, Uh um, but I knew that as I was able to see the system of racism um, unfold for myself, I was like, oh, there's no way I'm actually going to be able to survive in the system. I've got to get out for my own survival. And so uh, I was building Bessie's Cakes to eventually leave corporate America to do that. Um, you know, and then over the years, it kind of got um, a bit more competitive and uh-huh. more vegan bakers were coming on the scene here, um, and uh-huh. they were be, they were really, and they're black women, the, the vegan bakers that's here, uh, black women, and they um, were just w- leaps ahead, miles, <laughs> years ahead of me, in uh, their ability to create um, desserts that were vegan, healthier for us. Um, and they had a lot more time because I was still working full-time and doing Bessie's Cakes uh, in the wow. evenings and weekends, which was banana. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I was like, okay, well, I can do that. And I had really started shifting my attention to that. And then um, um, what really made the pivot was 2018 mm-hmm. when 
this opportunity to be a racial equity consultant full-time came up. And so I left my, my corporate job and jumped into racial equity consulting and then was doing baking as well. So I was doing the two, of course, you know, because we're hustlers. We're hustlers, so, you know, yeah, we're gonna, you know I'm going keep, to you know, keep this money going. And it was just interesting how even with that leap, both businesses started growing at the same time at almost the same rate. Like I was doing celebrity weddings, and uh. I'm doing – Huge orders. I had um, uh, a 500 cupcake order, a 1100 cupcake order. The orders were just getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, and then my racial equity work was building. Um, you know, because I had been doing it for years, especially coming out of the government, uh, and people had not really um, ventured into making the investment in a consultant. To, who could do the, the the beginning and end work that we can do? That you know, um, I've worked for, with an institution, a large institution, who started this work and then got them to a place where it's common practice to talk about race and racism, begin to interrupt it, not be defensive, you know, and moving to really doing significant um, change. So, you know, all organizations and institutions need that, you know. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the work was growing. And uh, I, had to, I had to make a decision in 2019 um, which one of these I was going to, you know, do. And the racial equity consulting business uh, won because it just, mm-hmm. you know, it was more profitable. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I shut down Bessie Stakes in 2019. Mm-hmm. And I was uh-huh. But, you know, yeah, part of it, though, just, was it was a tribute to your grandmother. I mean, did, was it was it kind of hard to do, to, to sort of let that go? It was very hard. <laughs> it was very hard. It was one of the hardest things I had ever done in my life. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> because, you know, because named after my grandmother, and my grandmother, I talk about my grandmother all the time, even to this day, um, her uh-huh. impact on my life. You know, um, and it was an honor of her. You know, Bessie's Cakes is, you know, uh-huh. when you think about legacy, like you mentioned, think of, thinking about family and legacy, Bessie's Cakes is what, you know, uh, essentially kept Bessie alive in a sense. Um, uh-huh. with here and, you know, people in Michigan, everybody in Michigan was like, when are you coming back in? When are you going to open a Bessie's Cakes in Michigan? <laughs> I was like, uh-huh. Y'all, y'all don't want no vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but my family, my family, you know, really loved and appreciated, you know, hearing and seeing Bessie's, you know, name, my grandmother's name, said and talked about all over the place, not just in Seattle, not just in, even in Detroit, but our family in Georgia really loved it and celebrated, you know, hearing that, you know, her name was being out there and her face is out there because, you know, the, the logo was her face. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was really, it was really good, and I, and I still honor her. I honor her every day in everything that I do. And so uh, it was yeah. very, very hard. It was very hard. Well, I'm sure that, you know, she, you know what? You kept her legacy going because she hustled making them cakes and people knew it and loved it, and you're doing it. So we're going to take a second break, and then we're going to talk about 
what took you away from Bessie's Cake, which I think was something in your heart all along. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown with my friend who I miss, Marlon Brown. Marlon, mm-hmm. with Racial Equity Consultants. You're not just a consultant, you're a partner. Mm-hmm. When it came, so when I'm thinking as a partner, you were with it from the inception? Or did no, you I wasn't join? With it from, yeah, I joined. I joined. Uh-huh. Uh, Racial Equity Consultants was uh, founded in 2016 by Fran Partridge and Kiana Wheeler. So Fran is a white woman, and Kiana Wheeler is a, um, a multiracial woman who identifies as black. Uh-huh. Um, so they started you know, the, the business together um, because what we learned um, in doing this work uh, a, con- a consulting team that is uh, cross-racial, having a, a white consultant, subject matter expert, and a, um, a consultant of color, it could be black or multiracial or uh, another um, racial category, mm-hmm. works really well when we're um, having these conversations, especially with leadership who are almost always all white, leadership teams, leadership staff, or um, executive um, teams, uh, to have both subject matter experts in the room at the time uh, to really talk to situations, issues, things that come up, current events and that. And so when I came, I had been doing that um, the seven okay. and a half years I was at King County, I, all of my work was with a white counterpart. Um, so that, you know, because we know that there are things that we say, when we say it as black folks to white folks, they hear like the Charlie Brown parents, you know how the Charlie Brown and the uh-huh. parents, parents, when they were talking, it was wah, 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 you know, <laughs> that's what white people typically hear us when we're talking about race and racism, that's what they usually hear. And so I learned that if I tell my white counterpart to say the exact same thing, they'll hear it. Mm-hmm. And it was a tactic that we just really, you know, built on because it was effective, and we needed to be effective because we didn't have time to be playing around with white folks. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, and so in the business, they went into it that way, and then they knew 
you know, I have that same practice of, you know, there are things, you know, it's just more effective to have two consultants cross-racial in this work moving organizations to change. And so 2018, when I took over for Kiana Wheeler, who still works for the city of Seattle doing this work, and she works for the city, um, I, I already – I already knew how to do it. It was just, you know, it was like putting my hand in a glove that I had, you know, had, you know, for years. So, um, yeah, and so I've been uh, co-owner of uh, Racial Equity Consultants since 2019. You know, since 2019, and even before, but especially since 2019, a whole lot of stuff has gone on. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that, and even if you go further back, I think that um, since 2016, you know, to talk about race, to talk about equity, that pe- many people don't get, what has been the biggest challenge to you in doing your work? Um, ooh, the biggest challenge uh, I think is maintaining my sanity, actually. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have a very robust uh, therapy practice. You know, I go to therapy um, very often because, um, you know, having conversations about race and racism, you know, as I'm experiencing it on, on a daily basis, I mean, we're all experiencing it, but the impacts of it I'm experiencing daily um, uh, requires that I have um, a lot of self-care. And it's something that I uh, advocate for, for many of us. I think all black people should have free health care and should have uh, free access to mental health care. Um, because of the things, the trauma that we have experienced and the trauma that has been passed down to us through our DNA, which that's a whole other conversation. But, uh-huh. you know, we, we need resources to really um, manage what we go through on a daily basis. And so uh, for me the hardest part is just, you know, how do I keep myself, you know, well enough, secure enough to engage in these conversations and know that my black body scares the hell out of these white folks. And, <laughs> uh-huh. and I can do that and hold the space in the container for them to, you know, to have that fear and trust me in the process. Uh-huh. Um, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of energy. People, you say all the time that you are you are gifted uh, beyond words to be able to hold a space for folks to um, be able to be vulnerable enough to have these conversations. Because you know, folks, most folks don't have conversations about race and racism, and they surely don't have mm-hmm. it on the job. These folks are on their jobs having conversations about race and racism and how it shows up in their their organizations and institutions. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't take it for granted uh, the responsibility to hold that space, what type of energy it takes from me personally and for um, my business partner, Fran, to hold that space 
uh, it takes a tremendous amount of energy uh, to do that, especially when we're working oftentimes with 30 or 40 people at a time. So, um, um, but definitely maintaining my sanity, not uh, um, taking a lot of things personal because I know um, I focus on the system. And people, we're all in the system, and what's happening is what the system has taught us to do and act and react. And so I, I keep my focus on the system. And then the people and the person, you know, I work with them to unlearn the bad behavior, the stereotypes, the responses that have been so harmful to us uh, as black and brown, indigenous, and Asian folks. Um, and write new narratives um, for us based on our individual uh, relationships with each other, not these, you know, easy, quick, you know, narratives that we've been using. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much the hardest part. Um, there, you know, because of what's happened, like you mentioned, so so much has happened since 2019, you know, the rise in um, murders by the, at the hands of law enforcement, the overwhelming rise of uh, domestic terrorism where there are mass shootings happening almost weekly, multiples weekly now, uh-huh. uh, and the rise of that um, has sparked, particularly in this region, you know, because, you know, the Pacific Northwest, is known for being this progressive liberal land and all that, you know, and oh no, you're not racist. So not true. Um, but, you know, folks here are more willing to have the conversations uh, in general. I'll say that in general, because there are, there are still groups of people here who are adamantly against having the conversations and would, you know, um, try to say that racism is a thing of the past, but um, that's strongly uh, um, um, failing in the sense these days. But, uh-huh. um, you know, but, but organizations and institutions out here are more willing to invest in it. Um, than I have seen in other areas. Um, and this past year, we have grown so much. Um, I, I, it's, I can't even put that into words. We're now seeing clients across the country, uh, not wow. just in the, in the Pacific Northwest. We have clients all, all over, uh, from Nevada to Florida to uh, North Carolina, New York, Chicago, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and um, and we're getting um, lots of interest. We we get new inquiries at least three or four a week, and we've been getting that many uh, since since George Floyd's murder. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I think that you know, because racial equity, okay, there's there's racism, but racial equity also falls in there where some people. You know that thing. Well, if you just work, you can pull yourself up from from by your bootstraps. But recognizing mm. that, you know, some of us don't have boots. You know, and <laughs> many people don't understand racial equity. But if you start to talk, that they immediately go to, "I'm not a racist. I think that everyone mm. should have the opportunity." How do you 
peel that back so that they understand mm-hmm. what, that you're talking about opportunities, some opportunities that have been denied generationally and are systemic, that, you know, that that's part of the issue. Yeah, we spend a lot of time in history, and we pull, uh-huh. um, um, because what we know, uh, our country has worked really hard to not teach um, people in this country and people who uh, immigrate into this country the full history of this country and how our history has developed the context in which we're living in. And so um, we spend a considerable amount of time in history to see how racism was developed in this country, how it was perpetuated and upheld in this country. Um, And that, as well as data, lots of data, um, because, you Uh know, white folks love data. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that we, we bring that into the conversation, and we know that this country doesn't teach the history. You know, I mean, we now, this year, you know, more so than any, because of much of the conversations we've been having about race and racism, now, you know, there are, are groups of people who are trying to ban the teaching of American history to our kids and saying, uh-huh. you know, it has, it was by design why this history wasn't taught. You know, people try to go to um, think that they kind of look at um, um, Germany and what Germany has done to, to ensure that everybody knows about the Holocaust and, you know, the, you know, egregious treatment to um, Jewish, Jewish, um, uh, residents. And, you know, the, it's talked about, there's monuments, there's history, you know, and the and, and United States has not done that and not done that, you know, willingly. <clears throat> and um, so many people, particularly white folks, are oblivious to what has happened in this country. There are people who are still learning about what happened, the massacre in Tulsa, the massacre uh-huh. in Rosewood, the massacre in uh, so many places. North Carolina had several. Florida has, you know, even more. Uh, Louisiana had several, you know, and just, um, you know, the laws that have been enacted in this country to benefit white folks and to um, prohibit black folks and brown folks from uh, those same um, experiences and access to wealth and um, homes and you name it, you know, education, healthcare, all of that. Um, they, they, they weren't taught that there were actual laws that prevented um, black folks, that took away those rights um, even uh-huh. um, because they were, all, they were once granted to everybody. And then they, uh, then the the elite, the people in power, the people who are, you know, in you know uh, elected office, took those rights away. And so, you know, white folks, a lot of white folks have grown up with this narrative that, you know, oh, black people are lazy because the politicians uh-huh. used that narrative for a particular purpose and reason, and it benefited them to have that narrative so that they can continue to uh, institute racism, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so that's what we really lean to. I'm like, you know, we're teaching uh, a lot of the history, and people are just 
dumbfounded when they read about what happened uh, in this country and how uh, our history has uh, created this context in which we live and how duped, how lied to they have been by um, our government and by, um, you know, many institutions in this country. I mean, even the conversation about, you know, the uh, the Civil War and, you know, talking about uh, – uh, what, what is this? <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. Oh, the um, – the, the, the Confederate, you know, uh-huh. the story and the narrative about the Confederate, um, you know, people don't know. And they think that, oh, you know, the Confederate was, you know, good guys who were just really trying to defend X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, no, you should have absolutely no idea, you know, uh, what you're talking about. And the Confederate lost. They, they <laughs> lost. You. <laughs> and you're celebrating them like that they're still around and they won something. They won the narrative, but they lost the war. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so it's a, it's, there's a lot of education that we do. The things that you do, I mean, it's like it's so important. I mean, you know, like now, you know, every other day you see that somebody is appointing They've got their chief diversity officer. They're having a DEI program. But that learning and understanding, I know I was at a thing, you know, we have that um, a Fair Wage Michigan, and they're talking about 15 and up. And there are people who talk about, like, oh, well, you know, I try to tip. And when you talk about, first of all, how many people work in service industries and they depend on tips, mm-hmm. but then when you take back that, that tipping came as part of, post-slavery where it was written in there because they didn't want to pay former slaves, you know, a fair wage. So they had to really work real hard to get that tip. And when you break it, like you said, when you go into that history and you do it, there were some people were saying, well, you know, if someone works real well, I'll give them a real good tip and say, no, but they should have a fair wage to begin to. And so that's Mm -hmm. really different than, you know, saying, oh, we have a DEI officer and, you know, and we've got one, you know, the mod squad, one white, one black, one blind, and and life is good. When people Mm -hmm. call you, do you ever have to, are they calling you sometimes thinking that they just want, oh, a little diversity training and it'll be great, and do you have to break down to them that what you're doing is more substantive, bigger, and more lasting change than just saying, we got a, a DEI program, and we're trying to hire people from diverse backgrounds. Yeah, uh, all the time. <laughs> all the time. You know, folks want to, they just want a checklist, and they just want us to tell them what to do. And, you know, we share with our clients and potential clients that um, there's, a, there's a process to this. One, it took over 400 years to create the context in which we're living in today, and it's not going to get fixed by one four, six, or eight-hour training. It's not going to, that's not going to change anything. Um, and that, and it's, it's the reason why we work with our clients for two to three years to really help them build the infrastructure uh, of anti-racism in their organization and build their capacity to engage in these conversations of racism uh, and uh, oppression uh, that's built into every uh, organization in this country. And so 
um, it, it takes time. It takes an investment. It takes pushing, you know, and it takes um, some conversations that they have not uh, had to uh, have and need to have in order to really understand what's happening in their organizations and institutions. And so, um, you know, we we hear and see a lot of folks hiring diversity and equity inclusion managers um, for which um, we are not big advocates on, you know, those uh, positions. Not that they're not effective. What What often happens is uh, organizations hire them to become the DEI police. And uh. none of the leadership takes on the responsibility to be different. What that, what that does is we want to stay same, the, same, the same way we've always been, and we're going to bring someone in to um, tone please and make sure that we um, remain as comfortable as possible while you know, we do the very bare minimum, basically. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not effective to make one person, who is often a black or brown person, by the way, um, uh-huh. the equity police, and they have to be engaged in every conversation about race or racism in the organization and not have the support, the, the, the resources, the time, to, you know, to, to actually do what we know to be best, and that is build that infrastructure. Every manager, every leader, uh, every owner of a business needs to have the understanding and the capacity to be anti-racist themselves. If it's not the, on the you know, if it's not the work of everyone in the organization, it's not going to happen. And... Um, another thing that happens is when organizations bring in consultants like myself and others, um, they want to train the frontline staff. You know, we you know we just teach you know give them the training or whatever. You know, we're going to be good. But what happens? What we know to happen is once you give uh, your frontline staff these, you know, this language about racism, how to identify the system of racism, um, give them some tools to begin to interrupt it. Um, If leadership is not uh, in a place to hear those, you know, those experiences and those suggestions of change, they're going to respond defensively uh, and shut it down because they're uncomfortable. And they have to um, maintain their comfort at all at all times. Uh, and this whole conversation about being racist, not racist—I'm not racist, you know—and being um, anti-racist, you know—that that folks need to really understand what they're talking about because there's no such thing as I'm not racist <laughs> in a country uh-huh. that is built on racism. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> it's built into uh-huh. racism is built into every institution and organization in this country. And so for you know, people using it, and I hear a lot of folks and politicians even saying, I'm not racist, I'm the least racist person you ever know, you know. Uh-huh. Um, that's absolutely true. <laughs> it's not uh-huh. true. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, we went through a unique period of time under the former administration <laughs> in Washington, and now 
you see people who look, you know, we've got a new administration and people will point to the first. You know, we've got uh, a vice president who's not only a person of color, but identifies also as black. We've got a Hmm. gay member on the cabinet. We've got a transgender Hmm. woman. You know, we had a black lesbian who did a press conference, who was, you know, Mm -hmm. so, I mean, people are like, oh, look, look here. I mean, and it's lovely, but Mm -hmm. you're talking about, I mean, four years, I mean, after how many years, you know, and Trump didn't just happen. This was just like somebody had just popped a pimple, you know. I mean, it had been there. And, And so... You see that, you know, this is what's happening, and people go like, oh, look, you know, and we've got this, and we've got, and they, and they point to this rainbow of not just gay, but black, brown people, there's a Native American in a, in a, a post, you know, and it's like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, just like when Obama got elected, they said now we're in a post-racial mm-hmm. period, not. From your lens as a racial equity consultant, if say if they called you in and they said, Marlon, <laughs> what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong and what do we need to do better? What would you say? Um, what they're doing right is that they're recognizing the, the brilliance of black, brown, indigenous, and Asian uh, Americans in this country, and they are appointing um, and nominating um, people of color, by BIPOC folks, into you know uh-huh. powerful positions. Uh-huh. You know, and you know those are among the good things. <clears throat> um, what's uh, what's not necessarily happening is. Um, our government is not giving, um, not giving our politicians, not giving um, these appointees, uh, not giving even our citizens <clears throat> the tools we need to be different. You know, there's a there's a process of knowing different, um, being different, and then doing different. And people want to jump to the doing without knowing differently and being different. And so, um, you know, yes, Biden's in office. Um, You know, the vice president is who she is. Uh, Congress is, you know, also experiencing a a huge uptick of uh, women in Congress. Um, You know, a new, uh, in the Senate, a a new black man and a Jewish man, you know, openly Jewish Uh man is there. So all of these advances are happening, but we're also seeing the most resistance, the most foolishness ever uh, <laughs> in our lifetimes for sure, but ever uh-huh. um, in our government um, officials. And, you know, that, that a lot more needs to happen when it comes to really interrupting these practices of racism. Um, and so, you know, we've got to get a bit more granular um, not just, you know, using these terms and tossing these, you know, racism and, you know, all this stuff, um, these terms in the work around. They need to actually, you know, be different. 
they have to show up differently, uh-huh. you know. And I, I think Biden has done, you know, as as president, has has had some very interesting conversations and made some some very you know pivotal um, um, uh, awakenings and some changes. And but he's just one person, you know, uh-huh. in a system that was designed for not for us. It was designed for white folks, and that system is still in play. And so that that system, you know, needs to go to a metamorphosis itself. Um, it, it, you know, we there's this narrative, you know, of home of the free, you know, land of the free, or home of the brave, or something like that. And you know, about how you know your dreams can t- come true in America or in the United States, particularly. You know, that is not a story and a narrative that um, that all of us, it, 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 it didn't have all of us in mind when it was written, uh-huh. right? And so, you know, how do we, you know, actualize that narrative? What does that look like? Because we still have, and now, uh, you know, folks are creating new laws to um, prevent us from, you know, having and living that experience. And so, you know, that is a lot of the work. And um, there, there, there needs to be a lot more honest conversations about what's happening and, and how we make the changes um, we want to see. Um, if, I can, if I can, just for a moment, <laughs> mm-hmm. what's, hap- what's happening in our, in, our, um, um, in our government with our elected officials what has transpired on January 6th and after this assault on democracy, um, if the players were black or brown, Come the on response now. would have been absolutely worse. They would have killed most of the folks that showed mm-hmm. up at the Capitol. They would have arrested all of their families <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and would have you know put folks into places and, and, and whether it was jails or you know isolation camps or something like they did to you know Japanese Americans that they would have instituted they would have had three at least three commissions you know investigating all the 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 resources and the response would have been drastically different. And, the, you know, the assault on democracy that's happening is still happening in a vacuum, and we're watching this. We're watching this, and we, we see the double standard that is in play. If those folks were black, it would have been a whole nother response. If, if President Obama had acted in the ways in which President Trump did and perpetuated these lies and garnered mm-hmm. all of this support. He would have. He would be arrested. He would. All, he wouldn't have never made it out of the White House a free Thank man. You. Mm-hmm. He, you know all of these mm-hmm. politicians who who uh, worked to support um, January sixth. You know, in all their ways, standing with Trump would not be free today. Still writing laws and 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 all. You know, it would the it would have been such a different place, and they they would have, you know, uh, you know, every, all of this stuff and all of this conversations about the lie and this, you know, diving into 
uh, uh, voting uh, documents, the ballots that's going on in, in Arizona, would have never happened. Thank you. Would have yeah. never happened. And, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that it's happening, the fact that, you know, our, our new administration who, you know, is still trying to get everybody in place, and I understand that, they, that – that thing happening in Arizona should have been shut down by feds a long time ago. It, before it should, it should never even got mm-hmm. off the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, how many and, times you gotta come? You know, come on mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. um, and and that 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 is the work that has to be done. If if in fact this country is going to be what it calls itself to be, we cannot allow this stuff to happen. You know, I mean, especially if it was us. If, if it was us, it, would, it wouldn't be. So, you know, that double standard has to be addressed. Even with, you know, the employment of all these black, brown, Asian, and indigenous folks in, you know, in the cabinet and in leadership positions, you know, in, in places of authority, proximity is power, basically. You know, more has to, has to happen because the system is working to protect itself, which is why we have, you know, 47 states attacking voter rights for black, brown, indigenous, and Asian folks. Mm -hmm. You know, it's why we have, you know, this assault on our intelligence, as if we don't see what this all means. And um, that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem. And so, you know, with all that you know, this new administration is doing, there is so much more that needs to happen. Um, there are too many of these folks, these actors, who, um, who, who have created this madness that we're experiencing. They are still free people, and we know if they did not look, if they weren't white, they would not be free. Be, um, sh- nope. You know, really. I mean, you know, it would be, like you said, uh, there'd be a, a black Guantanamo, you know. Uh, exactly. Uh, you, just, you were in my head. That's exactly what I said in my head. I was like, it would be a black Guantanamo, yeah. you know. And they'd be my issue. Like you said, knock, 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 come on, you go with us, you know. Well, Marlon, we're coming to the end of our time here. Clearly, you're going to be busy for a long time. But i got to ask yeah. you about something. Now, you and I are both... You know, we have a good friend who's also out there, Reverend Renee McCoy. And I noticed, mm-hmm. though, that um, you got this Hollow Earth Radio thing happening every Sunday. Yeah. Are you competing with Reverend Renee? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I love Reverend Renee. And, you know, we were in the, <laughs> we were in the same church. You know, we uh-huh. both were at a church on, you know, what we call the east side. And um, I was on leadership team. She was um, a bridge pastor for us. And so we worked really, really close with each other. Um, and, you know, when Hollowworth came about and Church with Mr. B came about, um, it was really uh, because the one long-standing gospel um, program in this area was leaving. It actually shut down by the time I started. And I was like, well, Hollywood Radio is in 
the traditionally black neighborhood, the Central District of Seattle, um, is highly gentrified now and black folks are leaving, but, you know, uh, it is still there. And I was already um, working with another show, Lulu Nation and the crew of Mr. D, um, and I was like, you know, we got to have gospel music. We have to have gospel music. And so um, they, you know, gave me the platform to do this. And so I've been doing Church with Mr. B. Uh, oh, my gosh, it's been almost four years now. Uh-huh. And, you know, bringing gospel to the airways uh, and internationally because people across the globe listening to my show, which is uh-huh. – amazing um uh-huh. uh it's uh, very humbling and it's a huge honor but it was it's very necessary and it was because the pacific North, northwest is a very unchurched area you know christianity is um not as huge as it is in other parts of the country um but there are people who uh, love gospel music, love what, you know, gospel music does for, for them, uh, and needed, uh, you know, access, you know, to, uh-huh. you know, a place to hear gospel music on a regular basis. And so, um, you know, my time slot, 10 a.m. to noon, um, is uh, to have an offering for folks who are not going to go to a church. We're not going to go to a church building or we're not, you know, having uh, that offering. Um, it is to have uh, an option. Uh, it's to add to the options. And so not to compete with Reverend Renee, but it's to compliment, you know, the offering. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, as, as one of the only – is I, I'm still researching this, but – from my friends who are in the gospel um, genre, I am the only same-gender-loving, out, open, same-gender-loving gospel music DJ in the country. All right. There, there are, there are same-gender-loving, there are gay, or there are LGBTQIA folks in the business and, you know, hosting, they're not open. Uh-huh. And I am, my friends are like, oh, you're the only one who uh-huh. is actually open and honest about that, you know, and that, you know, in this, you know, <laughs> very uh-huh. dogmatic, you know, genre of music when it comes to uh-huh. LGBTQIA folks, uh, you know, we've always been in the church. We've always been in gospel music. You know, and if we really look at our history, a lot of gospel music that is, you know, known, famous, comes out of our community. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, I, you know, and I don't take that for granted. Uh, I don't flaunt it, and, you know, throw it in everybody's face, but I'm definitely not in denial of it. And I do speak about LGBTQIA, you know, issues and, you know, events and things like that. Uh, on a regular basis, and so uh, and and we have been ostracized uh, out of so many churches, um, and we need more spaces where we can come together as Christians and and celebrate gospel music too. You know, uh-huh. so yeah, that's that's 
that's Church with Mr. B, and I, I love it. I, I, I love it. I, have, I, I don't want to ever be anyone's pastor. I know that that's not my calling, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, having access to gospel music and having that, that freedom and liberty to really uh, celebrate our relationships with uh, our creator, I think our, our, that's, a, that's a right that we can't just um, uh, refuse. Well, Marlon, it has been a joy reconnecting with you. I, yes. I do miss you. I do miss Danny. You know, when I talked to Danny, it was like, you know, ah, you know, it's just like old home week. <laughs> and here you are. I mean, and it's just really wonderful. I am happy to hear you what you're doing. I think you're really creating change, and you're and you're doing it. So I'm so proud of you. And so is Bessie Bessie May, <laughs> and in Detroit, we are proud of you, my yeah. brother. So I want to thank, thank you. you for taking this time and and bringing us up to date on what's happening with Mister B. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So much. This is a real honor and a joy. It's good to connect with you and get and get caught up too. I I still need to hear more of what you're doing, so we can do that offline, of course. But you know, I'm oh well, so well we so. will. Well, we will. Okay, definitely. <laughs> okay. Well, um, thank you again. Uh, my best thank to you. Danny. Yep. I want to thank my guest, racial equity consultant. Marlon Brown. He and Danny may be living in Seattle, but Detroit will always be home. Every Sunday, you can join Marlon as he brings a little bit of gospel to the Seattle airwaves on his radio show, Church with Mr. B, aired on Hollow Earth Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.